Cody, what what if this is what I've been thinking about lately? What if everything we're thinking about is just kind of wrong? Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. And um, yeah, I've been thinking about a lot of stuff lately. We're deep in the summer. Been thinking about the way we think about basketball and talk about the best players and you know the greatest players of all time and the greatest this and that and um, you know Seth Seth Part now does the tears project on the Athletic. Have you you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that where he puts all the the players in different tiers to try to catalog how to stack up the superstars of the league and the all stars and good role players? Did you see that one that just just came out at all? Uh, I haven't personally read it, but I'm definitely aware of what he does, and I'm aware of the project and the way that he does that, and I I kind of dig it. I like the the intellectual pursuit that he goes through with. Yeah, it. yeah, I think he I think he did a good job um, with it, and I don't know how much is controversial, but I, I'm I'm soaking all this in lately, Cody, and the thing I keep kind of coming back to is, are we? Are we sure about the things we think we're sure about in basketball? Do we really have like 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 okay? Let's think about like the greatest players of all time. Um, yeah. And and a lot of ink has been spilled over, especially these days, with Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And you know which one of those two guys is? The, is it only those two guys? Um, he, but here's the thing: like if if someone comes up on the street and says, "Who's the best player?" you've ever seen at their best. So forget career, forget accolades, just the stuff that we do like within the season, hammering out, hey, this team is playing the best right now. This player is playing the best. He's His scoring game is unstoppable because of his jumper, because of these moves. He makes great reads on the court. And then you extrapolate that out to like a year or two years or whatever short period you need. This is the best player that I've seen. This guy maybe is the most impactful player that I've seen. Um, how sure are we that that is only, I see people who say it's only one player. It could only possibly be one player. There's no argument for any other player. How sure are we that it's two players? How sure are we that it's three players? I mean, this is the way I think about this. If data from Star Trek comes down and he gets to watch every basketball game ever played and he goes, okay, now I know the answers. I can tell you with great precision who the best players are. How confident are you that that answer is coming from maybe only one or two people that we think it's coming from sort of in the general basketball sphere domain? That's where my head is at. Wow. That's that's a really big question. And I think what's really weird to think about is like, if we go back to the first time that people started watching basketball and we're like, you know what? Let's archive this in some way. Let's take what we're watching and collect it so that people can go back and like get a quick view of it, right? And so you immediately get the box score. And it's so weird to me that pretty much all box score stats that we still have right now are based on those very first thoughts that's like, all right, these are going to be the three or four things that we actually track. We can't like get away from that. And I, I when you say this, I think about it, I'm like, wow, how much are we like... Uh, forgive the pun, but how much are we boxed in to this box mm. score thinking of it yeah. and how that actually informs what we're what we're doing? So I don't know, Ben. That's that's a big question. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I've talked a lot about this in Thinking Basketball, the book. We have these, sometimes we have little notes that Cody and I share back and forth about things we can talk about uh, on upcoming shows. And I think for like two years, Cody's had a little note that says, Thinking Basketball, the book 2.0, like what would be different? What would you change? I don't know if we're ever going to get to that. But the thing that, that relates to what we're talking about here is there's a section in the book on winning bias and the concept of how that influences our thoughts. And this is very much at the root of what I've been thinking about where, you know, someone like Nikola Jokic, uh, he, he can't cut it because of his defense. It's a real liability. You're never going to win in the playoffs with him. And then he wins. And now it's like Nikola Jokic, he may be unstoppable. Um, and we just see this over and over. Kawhi Leonard, he is inevitable. He is the next Michael Jordan. You can't stop him. Um, we won't mention that the Raptors were like a 55 or 60 win team without him and got to the conference finals and were very, very good otherwise because I saw him do that in the playoffs. So this idea that like winning creates a proof of something in the playoffs, I think is still under discussed. I think the effect of it is still underappreciated. It uh, appreciated. I think I still have tension within myself when I analyze players at the end of years, going like, "God, I know this guy's team fizzled out, but he just feels like the best player to me." But no one seems to accept this idea. And the flip side is, when players are on winning teams, it's so easy to say that they, quote unquote, proved it. And I want to talk about that more. And I think if we did like a Thinking Basketball 2.0, it would just be like 200 pages of these examples of, uh, and we'll get to some of them today. So if we go back to like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, um, how would they be viewed if they didn't win championships in their career? And if this seems like a very hypothetical out of left field question to you, um, I actually think that even players as great as those guys were very close to being in situations where they didn't win championships. I mean, Jordan, in a sense, is the easiest one. Just give Scottie Pippen a knee injury in like 1989. Um, what happens? Certainly the Bulls do not win a championship without Scottie Pippen. I hope at a team level, uh, at a sort of general basketball sense level, I hope we can all agree the evidence is there that if you take away one of the greatest players of all time, you take away one of the greatest perimeter defenders of all time on a team that succeeded with playoff defense, you take away just a fantastic secondary offensive option for a team that didn't have a ton of that, teams like that don't win championships. It's just almost impossible. So you get rid of Pippen and... Cody, do you think people would still be comfortable talking about Michael Jordan as the greatest player ever if he had zero championships? Or every time he failed, would the narrative be reinforced that he needs to learn to pass more? Or whatever it is that someone tries to pull out from a playoff series that his team didn't win versus him not winning. That's, that's kind of at the core of what I'm bouncing around in my head these days. Let's let's back up just just a second here because I'm I'm with you on this, but I'm I feel like I can feel the energy out there, I'm like traveling into the future and hearing people's thoughts about it. I don't know if everyone is on board with the premise that Jordan wouldn't have won with the Bulls if Pippen was injured. So just you know, off the top of your head, why do you think it was so close that removing somebody like Pippen from the picture would have made it unlikely 
all th- all things else staying the same, that Jordan wouldn't have won a championship with the Bulls. I guess that's a great place to start because there is a ton of evidence about how basketball works that gets ignored when we go for these tidy little narratives. And look, I think we should say this at, at the top. Um, when we start talking about the best players and the greatest players ever and the best teams and all that stuff, I mean... This is like a celebration of the incredible things that make the sport fun, that make the sport entertaining and interesting. And not everyone is interested in how the sausage is made. That's what we do a lot here, right? We mm-hmm. we unpack things and we try to figure them out. So I think that's really important to remember that like, if that's not your jam, that's okay. Enjoy the sport, have fun, throw on some highlights. Your favorite player doesn't have to be the player who, when you get down to it, drives the most impact. But there is also this reality that a lot of fans, a lot of people like ourselves, pretty much every coach, every general manager, every scout, um, to some degree, many of the players, like all of these parties involved in basketball are trying to figure out how to win at basketball. It is a structured sport with a specific rule, score more points than the other team. You can be great at defense, you can be great at offense, you can do both, but that's the goal. And so there are players objectively unarguably, and sometimes demonstrably, that are succeeding in that goal more than other players. And we're trying to figure out where that success comes from. If we look at the evidence for like how you win championships, the supporting cast is generally more important than the best player in terms of making a difference. And as you said, that's controversial to some people, but it also shouldn't be in the sense that like there's nine other guys on the court and four of them of your teammates, right? So if there's five players on the court, 80% of the players aren't you. And even though in basketball you have an outsized impact as an individual, which is what makes this kind of analysis so fun and interesting and muddy sometimes, um, a secondary superstar player is present on most championship teams. And when they're not, you need something accommodating that because the team needs to be really good. It's very, very hard for an individual player to even make a team a contender, let alone a strong championship-level team without other great players. So in Jordan's case, of course, if he got other stars to play with, I think they could win championships. But, you know, salary cap, financial stuff, back in the 90s, maybe you just get stuck. Maybe you just, Pippen's injured and you never replace him, and now you're stuck there for years on a team that can't quite get over the hump and, you know, well, we lost to Detroit in the conference finals again. Um, what's the narrative behind that? So I can go deeper if you want, Cody. I mean, the Bulls were a team that with a few exchanges of parts, won 55 games the next year when Jordan left. So historically speaking, we are talking about a very strong supporting cast, but they were not a 55 win team without Scottie Pippen. Uh, let's put it that way. I think with Pippen is a small sample but he missed 10 games the next year where the starting lineup was held constant and they played at a 43 win pace. So that can give you an idea that Bulls team was a little better than the year before, than the year before that. Um, It's just very hard to take a 30 win team or a 25 win team and make them a championship contender. And the evidence for that is fairly consistent across the entire history of the sport. Okay. Now, First of all, I love the idea of us being basketball sausage makers, right? Like, that's all we're doing up here is we're just verbally making sausage. But this whole 
this whole endeavor kind of reminds me of like when artificial intelligence started playing Go, the extremely elaborate, difficult game, as well like playing against a human, and then the AI like made a decision. And when people were watching, they're like, oh, wait a second. No human would ever make that play. That's kind of how I think about this is like we have so many human eyes on this that like at a certain point, are we just like biased in a way that we can't step outside and, and see at that yes. point? Yes. And I think, yeah, that's the, that's the part of this uh, adventure that we're going on right now. That's that's just so difficult. But I also can't get out of like, I don't know, Ben, part of me also feels like and this might be controversial and like the Jurassic Park, like chaos theory sort of thing, like winners find a way like there's someone could make the case it's like there's no possibility that somebody as good as a michael jordan as good as lebron james wouldn't have in some way found themselves in a situation where uh where they didn't win a championship and i think you almost need to like find a counter argument right and so maybe part of what we're going to be doing today and however many days this might be is trying to figure out like was anyone actually in a situation where they didn't hit that equilibrium where they were in a situation to win it all. So I don't know, Ben, I'm not subscribing to any of those, but those are just some of my thoughts as I'm trying to, to think about everything that you just threw at me here. Well, the group think thing is really powerful. I mean, the number of years it took for people to accept that the three-pointer was a good idea just demonstrates within the sport how stuck you can get in your thinking and how you can come up with quote-unquote expert ideas that say like, no jump shooting team, you know, is going to win a championship. You have to be meaty. You have to have a great defense. You have to do whatever, whatever the idea of the time is. Um, another way to think about this in a technical term is like overfitting, right? You're you're overfitting to what just happened. You're you're going, oh, um, well, it's the it's Hume's classical induction problem, right? It's like, well, the team that won last year is the team that's going to win this year. And you see that throughout history. You see, if you look at betting markets, and betting markets are an interesting capture of how people were thinking at a time, you see some of the most fascinating things ever where like, a team that hasn't done well is not really given any chance to win. And then once they win, then it's like, well, they're the favorites. We, we, and I love this expression like, um, well, I'm not going to pick against him until I see him lose. So... Mm. So what happens is a team wins three series like the Boston Celtics last year, and then they lose in the finals. And all you can talk about is how they're flawed, right? But the team that won four series, just one more series, and didn't get a chance to play a fifth series, they're not flawed. They're unbeatable. That's sort of the thinking that comes from this. It's so easy to see how, as a community, we get into that mindset around a team and then extend those ideas to the individuals that are the best players on those teams. And um, yeah, I mean, what what if the 2022 Golden State Warriors had to play the 2017 Golden State Warriors in the next round? Would we just talk about all the weaknesses that they had on their team? And, um, you know, it's this idea of narratives where like people say, I've, I've never seen him come up in a big moment. Never seen him come up in a big moment. I mean, that's so silly. That's so silly. All the great players in NBA history... Uh, have great big moments. It's just you don't notice them if they don't win championships. And you like 
the team that you're you didn't mention here that actually did go up against like say the 2018 Warriors are the Houston Rockets, a team that by all accounts like what is the narrative on somebody like James Harden who if they're he's not facing what top 5 greatest teams of all time game 7 goes on this weird 0 for 27 three point streak like there's so many weird variables that fell into place there and then maybe even like you know we go to we go to the Nuggets here actually i think the Nuggets are also illustrative here because you were just talking about them you and i were publicly very pro Jokic throughout the entire year we're talking about like this is one of the better players we've seen but i also don't think either of us were saying things like the nuggets are definitely going to win the championship the nuggets are our favorite going into this but now all of a sudden because like you said they showed it that they they can actually win it it's just easier to fall back on that so there's a lot of human bias in all of these things that it's really hard to to disentangle all of it yeah so i wrote a book about this basically a long time ago. But I think what we're getting to here is the sort of certainty, the dogmatism. Like, this player is absolutely the best player. It's also a term we hear in basketball. Like, this guy was the best player on the planet, even though other people will say the same thing at the same time. Uh, Of course, we watch a lot of old games around here, and you go back and you go to the early 2000s, and you'll hear people talk about different players as the best players at the time. But now... You know, you find yourself in a discussion or, you know, you're on a ESPN talking head show or something and they'll just be like, categorically, this player was the best player at the time. Um, and Cody, I guess what I'm getting at is like, how many players could you actually make a case for that are the greatest basketball players of all time or is the greatest basketball player of all time? Like, are we really certain? Are we really, 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 really certain Um, Of course, I talk about ranges a lot, and I try to be relatively tight and aggressive with my ranges because I don't want to get into a kind of intellectual nihilism where we're like, well, we don't really know. Maybe Cody Hodak is actually better than Michael Jordan. I mean, maybe like, yeah, yeah, he couldn't shoot and he couldn't dunk. And actually, you can kind of still dunk, can't you? I was going to say, I was going to say, let's slow down. Yeah, so he can dunk. That's his whole game. His whole game is post-hook dunk. but we're, we're not trying to do that. I think, we, I think in general, we do a good job as a community of, especially these days as we've gotten smarter, of kind of understanding who the value drivers are. Those guys get the most money. They get the shoe deals. Almost always are in the all-star game. Sometimes I think there are some misses here and there, but this stuff gets exacerbated. And of course, I'm doing this offensive legend series, which is making me think about this. It gets exacerbated when we miss an archetype or something's different. Steph Curry is an interesting example because he does stuff that doesn't have a lot of like comparison points. So how do we really know? How do we really know how valuable someone like that is? How do we know? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, absolutely, and we're going to get to Steph Curry in, a, in you know however long it takes to get to him because I think there's a few really interesting points we can bring up. But just to rephrase what you're doing, because I do think that uh, 
people that might be listening might be like, oh, wait a second. It's either Jordan or LeBron. Like, I don't see any possible way to make an argument that anyone else was better than them. But I think if you can rephrase it as a saying, like, is it possible that there is another player or players in history that at their time were having an impact on the game greater than anyone else? And that includes Michael Jordan or LeBron James, right? Because I think when you say who's the best player, people all of a sudden go to like, all right, well, if I'm at the playground or you go to like the Bill Simmons sort of thing, it's like, well, if aliens came and I was able to pick anyone from history, these are the two guys that I would take. But instead, I think you have to sort of like travel back in time to these specific spots and be like, all right, at this specific time, this specific player had X impact, which was greater than anybody oh, yeah. else. And I, oh, yeah. I think Rel- framing it that yeah. way makes it seem more uh, more digestible. To Relative me. to the era. That's all I'm yeah. talking about. Yep. Relative to the era. And we can, we can figure out if you want to punt, you know, the 1950s into the sun and say, I don't care about George Mikan or something like that. That's fine. But I'm just saying, relative to the era, are we sure that... Let's stick with those two guys we talked about. Michael Jordan or LeBron James are the only two players with a case to say these guys drive winning. They change the probability of winning a championship on their team more than anyone in NBA history. I, I, I think it's a lot more than that. Let's put it that way. I think you can make a case for a ton more players because... It's that certainty thing. If you're a little less certain about Jordan and LeBron, if you think about the ranges that we talk about, you take a low-end range on Jordan and LeBron, and maybe you need to be a touch more liberal, but let's go back to data. Maybe data's like, maybe data's like look, I want, you, <laughs> I want you to have a few guesses. Um, it's possible, right? I'm not saying like one in a million, but I'm also, I'm also not saying like 90% band of certainty or something somewhere between that you need to say how certain are you that those two guys are the two best players ever for me i can't do it there's there's a ton of arguments for other players based on the evidence that we have that if i'm being honest with myself um i can make very easily and i can't categorically say well i think the evidence shows those two players are unimpeachable or unassailable no matter what. And once you do that, Cody, I think you open the floodgates to basically a number of players from different eras. And sometimes we know less about certain eras and sometimes we have more data. But um, I mean, at a certain point, are we just rewarding players for having better teammates? Hmm. I think that question is extremely interesting and one that like, if you go back and just look at everyone we consider to be the best is probably more than likely, but also something I want to pin you down on here that I'm, I'm interested because people, Ben and I did not share lists. I have no idea who he's going to bring up. I have a hunch about some players just because of just like, you know, this has kind of been your, your work in the basketball space. But when you say you can make a case for a ton of players, are we talking about like a legitimate case because I don't want to like participate in sophistry here where we're just like coming up with different kinds of arguments to try and like oh well if this was this and this was this and, and maybe I could see this player or are you talking like bulletproof for sure I think there's a case that I could go into a court of law and be like this is why I think this guy has a case to be the greatest player of all time okay how do you make a bulletproof case that Jerry West wasn't the greatest player of all time how do you do it? Well, 
I think <laughs> that's the tough part too here because we have to decide what is good enough evidence as opposed to just being like we're looking at like the 99th percentile example of how good they could actually be. So I, I don't know, Ben. I think that's a really big question as well. Right. But I mean, he's an interesting case because he comes yeah. from an era where we have less information. Um, but the information that we do have to me is consistent with what the greatest basketball player of all time would look like. And so if you add in the uncertainty of the era, and again, if you're not as interested in saying the greatest player ever came from the 1960s or something like that, that's fine. We can jump ahead to the 1980s. Let's talk about Magic Johnson. We can do him next. We can just do all the Lakers. Cody, we can just do a long line of Lakers. I can go to Shaq after that. It can be a lot of fun. We can go to LeBron. We can just do Lakers only. It's a Lakers only podcast. Um, before that, Mikan. We want to start with Mikan in the 1940s and 50s. We'll, we'll go wherever. I'm just saying with Jerry West, okay? Yeah, let's talk about West. I'm interested in this. Um, Jerry West, I've said this before. In 1963, he misses a ton of games, and the Lakers go from looking like maybe the best team in the league to not very good. And to put it in perspective, to put it in perspective, we have different ways of measuring impact. Maybe we should, maybe we should start there, right? Do we need to go back and like actually, actually just clarify the different ways to figure out how the heck we're going to say who the best player is in the first place? Because I, I feel like that's skipped over a lot of times. I feel like someone just says, well, this guy was the best player. And if you start pinning them down, they'll say things like, well, he won six championships. And then if you say, well, championships are a team thing, he'll say, well, he won all the scoring titles. And if you say, well, scoring isn't everything on offense, he'll say, well, he was a great playmaker. And you say, okay, but there's more interstitial stuff going on there in terms of actually driving impact. And he'll say, well, you want impact, you know, look, 40 points a game in the finals against the Suns. And, um, and you say, well, he's got to do it when it counts. Well, he's, he's got all these game-winning shots and he's clutch. So you see what I'm saying? It's, it's a sort of whack-a-mole process of just things that are intuitively valuable to someone. Whereas we're asking the question here about like your on-court impact. How would you evaluate your on-court impact? So um, should we start there? Or I, you, you tell me. Yeah, let, let's start there, Ben. What, what are some ways that, especially for somebody like Jerry West, where we don't necessarily have the full amount of data that we have for some of these other guys, where would you start with somebody like him? Because I, I have a couple takes on West, but I want to hear you kind of laying the groundwork for this. Well, I think we always have to remember that we're trying to, the very thing we're trying to do is like separate an individual player from his team. That's what we're trying to figure out. The, te the team result actually can cloud the, the, the thing we're trying to determine with the individual. So earlier you said something really interesting. You said, it seems unlikely to me that the best player wouldn't find a way to be on a team that wins a championship. Now that's circular. We, we know that's circular. But the thing is, good players will drive winning. So the best players are likely to be on winning teams. But also... Teams and supporting casts and coaches and opponents and injuries and all these other things also drive winning and losing. So that's what makes it confounding. Sometimes the best players will indeed be the ones who are on the winning team, and sometimes they won't. And that's what we're trying to figure out. So to me, that eliminates the entire rings argument sort of at the beginning, because 
we just don't know. Some It's possible that the best players are the ones that win all the championships, but also we know that there are going to be times when the best players don't win all the championships. And that's as, as a community where we have a history of getting stuck and going, I don't know about this Hakeem guy. He's no good. Oh, no, Hakeem's good. It's David Robinson, who I don't know about. I've changed my mind now. Okay. So with West, for instance, going back and talking about that, right? You asked me this. I was trying to collect my thoughts. That was a big question you hit me with. What is a case that you could make for somebody like Jerry West? All right, Ben, here's, here's what I'm going to say about Jerry West. Basically, nobody before him, like Oscar Robertson, I think, comes in a couple of years before him, and they're coexisting a good amount of time throughout here. Nobody else scores, right? We're talking, it's all about getting buckets. You have to outscore the other team. Nobody scores at the volume and efficiency from the guard position like he did up until that point. From any and position. From, from any, well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like Wilt a couple of times flirted with sort of where he was getting to, but only West in the was, regular, yeah, only in the regular season. West playoffs Wilt, scoring. Wilt had a couple of playoffs where it was like, it was kind of in the realm of it. Like it wasn't to the point where he's like clearly like multiple tiers better as a scorer, but West like definitely blew the doors open from the guard position, right? And so when you think about it relative to era, like the guards, even Oscar Robertson's scoring volume especially drops down significantly at that time. We don't see any guards any, anywhere near that. And then I think the main thing to me, the best case for Jerry West is actually on the other side of the court, Ben. Because this is a guy, especially when we think about steals, because I don't know, he was flirting in like the 30 games or something like that in his last season. I think it's the only season they tracked steals. He was like 2.7 steals a game. And this is a guy who go back, you see his extreme length. He's like 6'2", like 6'9", arm span. We talked a lot about the importance of length in our defense episodes. Is it the case that Jerry West was just like the best perimeter defender of the 60s? So then if we actually take this, right, we talk about like Kawhi Leonard, like at no point was he actually the best offensive player and best defensive player. What if Jerry West was? What if he actually was at the peak of his powers from the guard position? And then you take whatever the defense was at the time and his scoring added together. I don't know, Ben. All of a sudden you have a guy that relative to who he's playing against is pretty, by definition, the best player we've ever seen. He he looks superhuman with the scoring, mm-hmm. right? But what you just laid out is what I would call a bottom-up argument. We don't know how valuable the scoring is. We don't know how valuable the scoring is based on taking the film and breaking down the actions of how he scored. And we don't know how valuable the scoring is based on looking at the totality of that scoring and just saying, here's the bottom line stats. 30-something points per 75 adjusted for the time, whatever. He averaged 40 points a game in one playoff run, I think, in 1965. Uh, His true shooting percentage was like 10% ahead of the league or something insane like that. We don't know, objectively speaking, I think with any degree of like certainty required for the precision of this claim to say that scoring makes him the greatest player ever or no, he needs something else. He needs five more assists per game, Cody, to be considered the greatest player. We don't know that. That's what I'm saying. We can have an idea of what the scoring means, of what the playmaking means. This is a lot of the work I do, but what you just described is bottom up. So top down is like trying to figure out the overall value of the player or the overall value of a skill like scoring and then even hoping to compare it from player to player because would you agree with this statement? A player who averages 20 points a game on 60% true shooting and another player who averages 20 points a game on 60% true shooting are not automatically the same level of scores. Maybe level is the wrong word. Maybe they're in the same tier or something, but they're not automatically equal. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Okay, so the the even the stats we have in the box score, some of which have been very helpful, despite you know being conjured up seventy years ago or whatever. Let's let's figure out who gets the most caroms off the rim when someone throws it at the back. Let's let's see who can grab the most of those. Oh, what about the last player to pass to the person who scored within a couple seconds? I'll just eyeball it. I'll kind of, <laughs> kind of check the wind and um, some of those have been very valuable. We know that. So. Even with that, we're not really certain. If we take a top-down approach on West, the game, I mean, to me, what more could define impact than how good the team is when you're not playing versus how good the team is when you're playing? That's the very presence we're trying to figure out. When West is in the court, when West is on the court, or I should say in the game, 1963, the Lakers played uh, more than half the season with their whole team together, like their whole team, except Jerry West, he was the only guy who was missing. They played at a 56 win pace. When he missed 24 games, so uh, not a massive sample, but it's not a small sample. He missed 24 games, they played at a 34 win pace. That is a 22 win difference. That's really good. He misses more time in the middle of the 1960s, 1964 and 1965. Uh, he misses 11 games in those two years when the key players are in the lineup. They played a 19-win pace without him. The rest of the time, they're at a 50-win pace. This is what I expect the best player to look like. I don't know if he's really worth 24 wins or 18 wins or whatever, but it's hard to look at a player like that who consistently has a pattern of, well, I'm, I'm on the team for large periods of time and they're a championship contender. And then I'm off the team for large periods of time. And they're like the 10th. They're like at a nine team league. They're the 10th best team. They, uh, they, they completely fall apart without me. 1967 to 1968 is the worst two year period. He has in this run um, in a half a season. The team plays at a 39 win pace without him. I think that's because they have better guards and he's a guard play. So we can, we can apply context all the time when we look at these numbers, right? We're, we're never really certain. We're trying to figure out, like, okay, how much do I mentally slide the needle here? Archie Clark is a great guard. Elgin Baylor's there. Um, I think Archie makes a big difference. You have Gail Goodrich, players like that. 50-win team with him, 39 team without him. And then even at the end of his career, he has the exact same pattern in 1969. That's the super team with Wilt Chamberlain. They played a 56-win pace. That goes down to 42 wins. You just see it over and over and over and over again. How do you look at the outlying scoring, the possibility that he might have been a great, great defensive guard with the steals and the blocks and things like that? We obviously know he was a good passer for his time. And then these massive, massive impact footprints on his team. How do you look at that and say, oh, I'm 100% certain that Bill Russell was better versus if you just change the teammate quality. Maybe it's not the Celtics with nine championships in that stretch. Maybe it's the Lakers. How do you, how do you, how can you say with certainty? I, I don't know how. I don't think you can, Ben. I, I don't think that you can with certainty say that one player is better based off what you just said there. Okay. So we agree. Jerry West could be the greatest player of all time. Yeah. Uh, ben, he's definitely a guy that I flagged as somebody that I feel like I could make a non-gross argument about yeah. him being the greatest player of all time. That's the There's technical of- scientific term we're going for today. Non-gross argument. 
yeah. a non gross non <laughs> yeah exactly we're not participating in any gross we're just putting out arguments to be annoying in class um there's a, man there's a couple places we could branch off here and the first one i want to ask you about that's really interesting based off what you were saying this might seem like a really stupid question but also we're in a space where i don't know if there are stupid questions right like i think all of these are just going to be like oh, i don't know let's there, see how this goes there are no stupid questions here today there's only stupid answers yes yeah. <laughs> and everyone's going to be listening and evaluating them all right ben um, is it possible, like you just said, Jerry West, you, we saw some of these strong on-off or, or wowie with or without you type of numbers and signals and whatnot. Is it possible to have that kind of a signal and for it to be wrong? Like, could oh. we have a player like that and then you look at that and you're like, oh, actually, this player's not really good and this is just a weird statistical anomaly that happened for 20 games across these three different seasons. Now we're getting somewhere, I think. Um, I'm going to say... so. All of these sort of, let's call them the scoreboard family of metrics, okay? Uh, I would say plus minus fits into this. I would say the most crude version of this, Cody, is like the year-to-year changes from teams when there isn't a ton of roster turnover. So uh, the classic example, even though there was a little bit of roster turnover, um, people don't mention that, is like Larry Bird joins the Celtics in 1980, and they go from 29 wins to... 62 wins or something like that. I think the, the Suns did that as well in 05. So maybe I'm mixing my numbers up. But they go from like not many wins to first place. What's the big driver? The presence of Larry Bird. Uh, this has been done a lot throughout NBA history where people look at like a year-to-year change with one big player coming in and making a difference. That's a very crude version of looking at the scoreboard to try to figure out How many points per game or really how many wins is this guy worth? How much does he drive my ability to win uh, in the playoffs against opponents and things like that? Then we can look at what you just mentioned, the wowie from game to game. You know, within a season when someone misses 25 games and someone plays the other 55 games, and the teammates are held exactly the same. What happens there? I mentioned on-off or plus-minus. Then we have versions of that that mathematically try to adjust for the quality of the opponent within the lineup, which is our adjusted uh, plus-minus numbers or RAPM. And then I would say we can even look at things like lineup data, what I'll call, um, let's call them second-order kind of lineup effects, where, for instance, you look at, uh, like, Draymond Green and Steph Curry. And people have said, well, you know, if you look at, Steph and he has Draymond that's this thing that drives the Warriors as well and of course I agree Draymond Green is I think one of the most historically underrated players of all time probably with his defense and his passing and his playmaking but you can do stuff like look at the Warriors as a team without Steph Curry and look at every player's on off without Steph Curry so just remove Steph Curry from the equation or you can remove Draymond Green from the equation. And when you remove Steph Curry from the equation, things don't look that good, even for Draymond Green. When you remove Draymond Green from the equation, things don't look that good, but they still kind of look pretty good for Steph Curry. So you can start to dig into these interaction effects. The point is, Cody, the scoreboard, if we had better samples, if we had bigger numbers, is really the king. That's like the thing we're trying to figure out. The box score is just this other stuff that sort of we're grasping onto in the dark. 
to say like, well, I think this is a big driver and this scoring thing is really cool. And so there's these like bottom up and top down forces and there's uncertainty everywhere. And so to try to answer your question, um, I think that noise for someone like the Jerry West signal we just talked about, I don't see any way to say that it's just luck and a bad player could do it. But I do think there's enough uncertainty to not go, well, that proves Jerry West is the best player ever. There's just a range of uncertainty that exists there. And he has the evidence that suggests he could be maybe the best player to ever do it. We just never talk about it because he only won one championship because, you know, they lost in the finals nine times or whatever ridiculous number it is. Let me let me add to this then, because there are two parts of that equation that we're kind of working with, because when you're trying to mount one of these kinds of arguments, you can't go in there with just like one thing that's like, well, this guy's plus minus signal. That's a poor it's a reductionist version of what we're talking about here. But you can't just point to like the numerical value and be like, look, this person impacts the his team's scoreboard the most. Clearly, that makes him the best player of all time. So the other part of it is also the box score. I reference the fact that uh, Jerry West is at the time the greatest scorer we had ever seen when it comes to volume and efficiency. Is it possible, Ben, then, uh, to be considered in this GOAT conversation without also these titanic box score numbers, right? So even if you have, like, this ridiculous wowie swing, like, you miss games and your team is terrible, but on the other side, you're like, I don't know, you're not in the 28 plus 10, you're like a 15 plus 1 sort of score without huge numbers. Can you actually be a GOAT candidate with, with that level of box score numbers showing up for you? I think categorically, 100% yes. Whoa. Absolutely. Ooh. You don't think so? Um, I don't know. I'm just asking questions, Ben. No, no. I See, <laughs> but this is really important. I think this is really important because, okay. because the, the scoreboard family of metrics, when I say if we had more precise tools for that, or really you just we need better sample, you're never going to get it. You're never going to be able to say let's play a thousand games and trade the players all around. And, um, but if, if we had that, it's not biased toward any style. And that to me is maybe my favorite thing about basketball. Mm -hmm. So I just mentioned Draymond Green, like he's teased for averaging a triple single and eight points a game. It doesn't matter if he is having the biggest impact on the game, whether it's just his defense or a combination of his defense and his playmaking, or maybe the reality is, Cody, I'm describing things that aren't captured by the box score. And if there's enough that isn't captured by the box score accurately, then maybe, not maybe, definitely, the best player would not look great in the box score. Bill Russell is the original example of this. I think that's why Russell and Chamberlain is such a timeless debate. Because one player has all these things that are captured in Wilt. The other player doesn't, but he keeps winning. So people start trying to explain why he's winning. Um, it's as simple as defense probably in Russell's time because they just didn't really have defensive stats. But flip the box score around. What if the original box score was some guy from another sport that was obsessed with defense? And he was like, he was like I'm going to track shots contested i'm gonna track blocks i'm gonna track um like i don't know a team's shooting in the paint when this guy's i was gonna say on the court versus off the court but they didn't really have on off samples 
back then, but go with me down this road. Like the person yeah. did not care about scoring, didn't even didn't even track offensive stuff, and it was just all of these defensive things that would make a big difference. And then Russell just looked like a total outlier. It was like eight block shots per game. Other teams shoot 36% near him when the normal player is like 44% or whatever. Then would it be hard to make the non-scoreboard case? Probably not. So the scoreboard is still the thing that I think you come back to. The box score is the thing that's trying to help us, but it could point in the wrong direction. Okay. Let me give you an example. Henry. Are you buying what I'm selling? I am, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep asking questions because I think we're, we need to get deeper in this rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, we've referenced... Let's go back to our Warriors friends here. Uh, we've referenced this game a few times. Quite a famous game. We're going to time travel back to 2008, right? Stephen Curry is a college player for Davidson at this point, and they're playing Loyola, right? Loyola, Jim Patsos, I think, is the coach at the time. He has this strategy where he's like, Stephen Curry's not going to score. We're going to double-team him every second he is on the court. Steph Curry goes 0 for 3 from the field. Mm-hmm. He has zero points, but Davidson wins by 30. I think one of his teammates is like a 20-10 game. So maybe if you were like looking at the box score, you're looking at the game, how it ended, you'd say, well, the 2010 guy was the MVP of the team. But I think this is an example of extreme latent value showcasing that actually Steph Curry basically made it so that Davidson was playing 5-on-4, or 4-on-3, I should say, uh, throughout the entire game. However, Ben... We don't see anything quite like that in the NBA. Like, I can't think of any example that's quite that dramatic in the NBA. And even if we look at Steph Curry himself, who we might both agree has the most latent value on offense ever, maybe that's a, you know, we could talk about that uh, premise in a, in a second if you'd like. But even so, his three-year postseason scoring peak is like 29 points for 75 possessions on plus nine efficiency. That's ridiculous, <laughs> That's pretty ben. good. Wait a That's second. That's ridiculous. That, that's still pretty good. No, yeah. this is my point, Ben. This is my point, is he has this ridiculous latent value, but he's also deriving a ton of value from this box score creation that he's getting. So, like, Steph Curry, are you telling me, do you think that Steph Curry could actually be as valuable or as uh, impactful as Steph Curry is if he scored 10 fewer points per 75 possession, or is he not deriving a lot of his value from the actual points he's scoring? So I think this is an example where there are signals in the box score that map up with something that isn't explicitly measured, but you can still sense the signal. Whereas with Russell, there was no defensive stats. Mm -hmm. In the case of Curry, we're talking about gravity. We're talking about this latent presence on the court, what that does to a defense on every possession. Uh, it's not a binary thing. It's not like one time he was double teamed and that's the one time it counted and the rest of the game he wasn't double teamed. It's more like uh, the defender hugs a little bit farther out of the lane and the other players aren't paying attention to their man quite as well and the spacing is a little different and what is having four extra feet of spacing on every possession do? So this is like a middle ground example, I think, Cody, whereas Russell is an extreme because Mm -hmm. with Curry... People still want to look at points and assists and maybe percentages. And you couldn't derive, you couldn't force defenses to react to you if you didn't have that scoring pressure. So that signal is there. But there's something we have to remember. It is not impossible to think that there would be more Loyolas out there. And and we live in a world or a time where the other coaches are like, nope. Just not letting Curry score. So you can play four on three. You can do whatever you want. I'm not going to do it. In that case, a player like Curry would average 10 fewer points per game. But 
I think the history of basketball has shown that assuming we think coaches and players are smart enough, there's like an equilibrium that doesn't get skewed that far because you would rather try to find the balance of like, he's got to shoot sometimes, he's got to make me pay, but also I'll, I'll sell out to him a little bit more. You know, I don't know if defenses sell out to him too much or too little. Uh, obviously, the Celtics in game four, they, last year in the 2022 finals, they, they, um, they, they played a little game of chicken. They played a little game of basketball chicken, and Curry had like 43 points, and it was barbecue, barbecue curry night or something like that. So I don't know. But what I'll say is this. If you look at, we now have, this is so cool, man. We have 30 years of plus minus data hmm. for the NBA, for the whole league. And we have some more that other people, I've, I've tracked some, researchers have tracked some. There's an old Philadelphia 76ers researcher who has it for that entire team going back to 1977. So we have a little bit more. We have league-wide data for 30 years. And in those 30 years, Cody, if you look at the on-off Per 48 minutes over a five-year period. So the samples are not small. We are talking about more than 10,000 minutes played. And for most players between, let's say, five and 8,000 minutes on the bench. The samples are not small. So what could be the problem here? You, you could just be specifically valuable to your team because your backup isn't very good. We can talk about that if you want. This is not perfect. But all the teams that have ever done it, all the coaching changes, all the lineup changes, all the players, the best players in 30 years to do it have about a 15-point swing every 48 minutes. And there's a bunch of players lumped up there, okay? Dirk Nowitzki, Chris Paul, David Robinson, Carl Malone, Kevin Garnett, LeBron James. We might mention a few of those guys as we keep going through this conversation. They're all about 15 points per 48 minutes, uh, except for one guy. One guy is an outlier. Hmm. One guy is out on his own at almost 20 point difference per 48 minutes. And that is Stephen Curry. <laughs> so the answer to your question is, I don't know what the heck is going on with his scoring effect, but I do know that it has an insane signal that makes me look at that and go, that might be the best offensive basketball player we've ever seen in the NBA, regardless of what our preconceived notions are about who, who needs to hit a pull-up hezzy mid-ranger and dunk on someone's head and palm the ball or, uh, you know, back before my time, it was you got to get down to the low block and you got to have a hook shot and a drop step. Like, that's the point. The scoreboard throws out our preconceived notions uh, about style, about sometimes even your teammates. Now, in the case of Curry's won four championship rings, which is your point, Naturally, mathematically, the cream is also going to rise to the top sometimes because it's having a really big impact on the team. But, I mean, I don't know. How do you make the argument that he's – there's no case to be made that he's the best player to ever play? I, I don't know how to do it. I, I want to take a step back here. I'm not, I'm not completely satisfied from, from what I brought up here in a second because I think this even pushes my point further. We see – that Steph Curry is just like an outlier. Just a there are so many things that Steph Curry is an outlier for that at a certain point is just absolutely ridiculous. But like you said, basketball has not been played in the way that Loyal defended Davidson, right? And so we see this enormous signal for somebody like Steph Curry who, A, has this ridiculous latent value with his gravity, gives people extra space and things like that, but B, also puts up bonkers box score metrics. He scores an absolute ton. So 
Is it like we were talking about defense before? Let's leave defense to the side a bit. Is it possible to be a goat level offensive player without also contributing concrete uh, uh, volume and efficiency on the box score? I don't know. Um, the thought that jumped into my head as you were asking that is there's there's a possible universe. I mean. Maybe this happens in something like soccer, where there's 11 players on the court instead of five or on the field. But pitch, they're going to come after me. If it's not a field, Cody, it's a, it's a pitch. Uh, and yes, it's football, but it, it, American football is confusing, so that's why we use soccer. Anyway, it's not imp- – think about this. This probably happens at the youth level. It's, it's not impossible to think of a universe where if someone's that good at scoring – and their pressure of their scoring and the success of their scoring is reflected in the points and the efficiency that you just mentioned, and they're that good at scoring, the other team just doubles them away from the ball. Yeah. And then their teammates play four on three. And what does that do? It destroys Steph Curry's impact signal. And what we do is we sit up here on a show analytically and we say, boy, it would be cool if Curry could figure out how to get away from that double team. Because when they double team him, his impact goes away. So that is his kryptonite. He's not resilient. And then other players come along 10 years later and they're similar and they're just way better at breaking out of the chains of the double team or whatever it is. It's not impossible to think of a universe that way, but that's not how NBA basketball is played. Uh, The players are too good or whatever. So moving defenders that much does have that big of an impact. And I think in general, since you asked about offense, um, I think the power of playmaking is understated and I think that's what's happening to a degree with Curry where he's doing it in a different way because he doesn't have the ball but if you look at Magic Johnson if you look at Steve Nash maybe even Oscar Robertson like something is going on where helping the four other players with your passing and your playmaking coming from the threat of your scoring uh, that is insanely powerful and maybe more powerful than just being a great scorer unto unto itself. But even Magic Johnson and Steve Nash, while their scoring isn't quite to that level, we still see a box score signal with their creation abilities. We see Magic Johnson, we see Steve Nash, even in the playoffs. That's what I'm being saying. Able yeah. to set up their, but yeah. I, I guess that's my point is I, I don't know if I believe that you can be the offensive GOAT without, I don't want to say the best offensive box score signal, but without a substantial box score signal. Yeah, I think, well, uh, in general, I completely agree with you. But as far as I know, the only kind of like, I was going to say major one number metric, but uh, our our box plus minus that we use in-house at uh, thinkingbasketball.net for Patreons, Patreon, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. I almost forgot how to get there. I was like, what is it? Patreon? How do you get there? Patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. I think that's the only one that has Nash looking like remotely competitive with the other great all-time players. Something is going on with the way these other box score metrics are being set up that people look at someone like Nash and say, well, what's the big deal? What's 16 points and 11 assists a game? I mean, whoop-de-doo, like Kevin Porter averaged 17 points and 13 assists a game in 1979. Bring your A game, Steve. Like, he just doesn't look that very good to people. So... I mean, that's where I completely agree with you, but I also wonder if people understand how much is potentially missing when a player is 
that skilled at scoring, but leans even more heavily into the playmaking side than anyone else who's ever done it, probably. Okay. And I agree with that. I'm not trying to make the argument that I'm biased towards the actual box score, but I'm looking at Steve Nash on the, the database now in the 2007 playoffs in 400 oh, yeah. minutes. Yeah. A box a box creation of 17. He yeah. creates 17 shots per 100 possessions. Pass rating of 9.5. Ben, that, that doesn't even make sense how good of a passer you are. You're setting up teammates for just like the easiest kinds of shots. But my are overall you- point again is you need that box score signal of some kind along with the ridiculous impact metrics uh, for me it, to be like, yep, I think this is an offensive go. If you're on offense, yeah. Yes, on, if you're on, on offense. offense yeah. On offense, I want to specify. And I don't think it's remotely controversial or new for any listeners that I can make an easy Steve Nash offensive goat case, which I think mm-hmm. throws people sometimes. People say like, well, he didn't win a championship. He doesn't have all these clutch moments. He, he, he does. Um, but like, <laughs> just the idea that a player like that for me growing up, could also be better than Michael Jordan. It breaks your brain a little bit, but I mean, Cody, the more I do this, the more I study history, the more I learn about the game, the more I learn about X's and O's, the more coaches' seminars I watch, the more 1991 grainy VHS tapes about cross-screening in the paint I watch, Like, the more I realize when you lay out all of the film or you really break down a game and what happens... Jordan's style was really successful, but it's not necessarily inherently more successful than Curry's style, which isn't necessarily more inherently successful than Nash's style or Magic's style. And sometimes a player like Magic will have the right teammates. And again, this goes back to my thing about like, are we just rewarding players for having better teammates? Magic gets five titles because I don't know if you know this, but he played with Kareem (laughs) Abdul-Jabbar, who's going to be on my list of people who I'm pretty sure you can make a goat case for. Um also played with James Worthy, who was just awesome. And uh, and then the rest of the team, we've seen this so many times in the last 30 years now that we have way more refined tools to estimate what's happening on teams. Your fourth, your fifth, your sixth, your seventh, your eighth, even your ninth player. Being good NBA players makes a massive difference compared to a guy who like might not even be in the league in a year or two because he's just not... Byron Scott or Michael Cooper or, uh, you know, Jamal Wilkes or Michael Thompson or whatever other solid player they have. Vladi, Vladi Divac, you know, young Vladi Divac play with magic. It's like, how much are we just rewarding having a good team? And the Suns had a good team around Nash as well. But, you know, then you get into the opponents. Like the Suns were really close to winning multiple championships, but maybe the Spurs were just a touch better. And maybe if Manu Ginobili injures his ankle in a different year than 2008, maybe the Suns go through and start winning championships instead of the, you know, another team, the Lakers uh, beat the Spurs in 2008. So this is where my mind is at. I think what's interesting too about the having good teammates thing is it actually gives another piece of evidence that I think is really important to determining whether or not you could be a GOAT candidate. And that is evidence towards the fact that you can fit into other high-end players and make yourself a really good team. Right? Like, there's a possible world where some of these all time level, GOAT level players actually don't have a game that can fit in next to these other guys very well, and it hurts them, and they don't actually have as good a team. But the fact that Michael Jordan fits in with these, like, Scottie Pippen, or maybe that's an argument more for Scottie Pippen, but Magic Johnson could fit in next to James Worthy. Magic Johnson can fit in next to Kareem Abdul Jabbar, two guys whose games are predicated on, like, I'm going to get to my spot in the block. I'm going to isolate and I'm going to score. The fact that he could fit next to them also makes you be like, huh, 
that's really great that Magic could also play next to these other high-end guys and actually take them up to height. So I think it almost helps them in two different ways when we see players in this situation. Do you think that people realize, or maybe this is a controversial statement, maybe I shouldn't phrase it that way, but do you think people realize how much a supporting cast around a player can vary? Do you think that's something that as a basketball community, we've intuited. Because I feel like people are out here talking about basketball sometimes like it's tennis. And just like the player, he's like, did you know that this guy, Hakeem defeated David Robinson, but then also Carl Malone defeated David Robinson. So, okay, so Hakeem won the most majors in the 90s. It's like, it's not tennis. It's a team game. The supporting casts, based on the evidence that we see, and again, I think there's a ton I mentioned the year-to-year changes, uh, wowie changes, on-off changes, adjusted plus-minus changes, uh, secondary teammate effects and lineup effects that you can look at. I think there's a ton. And do you think that we've really done a good job of communicating how radically different a supporting cast can be? Well, let me ask you this. Maybe this can help clarify it a bit. Do you think that there is a wider gap between the impact level between player to player or from supporting cast to supporting cast? Supporting cast to supporting cast, and I would say it is almost by definition. Like, it's, it's I guess it's theoretically possible that an individual could, player could outdo it. Maybe you get to the youth level. You get to the youth level and you throw Michael Jordan in the third grade game and, and, and I have to eat my words. But I think the evidence has shown, in short, that no NBA player can take a 10-win team and make them a 70-win team. And yet, that's the range of teams that we see. So just on its face, without adding any other players, we know that you can be like barely scraping by to get wins every year or almost unbeatable. And the reality is, when you start to try to do the work on what it means to analyze a supporting cast, I've done some of this stuff recently, and even as someone who has looked into this through different perspectives, every perspective I add... I get more of kind of humbled by the difference between these supporting casts. So the, the great one as a great example is like what happened with Kevin Garnett in Minnesota. Hmm. That supporting cast, if you look at the players in the mid-2000s, Cody, um, most of them were out of the league in a couple years. And the ones that kept playing in the league only got minutes on teams that were outscored by like an average of like 10 points per 100. Like a minus 10 per 100 team is the only team that could employ these players. Or, to your last point, that's the team quality that they kept ending up on and contributing to. So they themselves are incapable of incapable of lifting a team beyond whatever that would be. That's like a 15-win base or something like that. Uh, furthermore, if you look at all the lineup effects when Kevin Garnett was there his team constantly played without him like a 10 or 15 win team. It was, it's just shockingly, shockingly bad. And you say, well, how could that happen? To your point, doesn't, doesn't, uh, what does Goldblum say in Jurassic Park? Doesn't, doesn't life find a way? Yeah. Doesn't, don't the great players find a way? Well, um, we know it took something extreme for that to happen, but it Mm -hmm. can happen. They lost three first-round draft picks because of some salary cap shenanigans. They had, uh, really tragically, two players die in that period. 
they had another up-and-coming star potentially in the late 90s have a, have a major knee injury. And the first guy they drafted over the likes of Ray Allen or whatever, Stephon Marbury, started to ascend a little bit and then was like, I want to get traded. I want to be out of here. They swapped that for Terrell Brandon. Brandon has a, has a career-ending knee injury. And they choose Brandon over Chauncey Billups. And Brandon never plays another game. So the answer to your question, like how could you get a really extreme situation is be a small market that can't attract franchise, uh, can't attract players, lose a bunch of draft picks, which completely craters your depth and have all your stars fall apart and have tragedy befall on you. And you're left with a team that is like a 10 win team. The opposite is probably Tim Duncan's Spurs, if they're even Tim Duncan's Spurs, by the time you get to the beautiful game Spurs. Cody, who's the best player in the beautiful game Spurs? Oh, my goodness. Um, the beautiful game Spurs. Yeah, is, is, it, it, is it Kawhi Leonard? I don't, think it, I don't think it's Kawhi at that point. Is it Tony Manu's, Parker? Manu's Tony Parker? pretty old. Is it Manu? It can't be Manu. Well, he's coming is off it, the bench. But I, yeah. any answer, if you want to make the case that Manu Ginobili is, is in your GOAT candidates here, um, I'm going to sit back and <laughs> be very receptive. Yeah. Okay. How do we know? So, how do we know he wasn't the greatest player ever? How do we know? You're talking about Manu Ginobili. Yeah, yeah. Is it because he came off the bench? <laughs> yeah. The fact, that, man, you you can't throw something like that at me like an hour into this. I'm <laughs> what it, I'm still sitting here with the KG thing and Duncan. Now you want me to know if Manu's well, the goat? Okay. We'll 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 put a pin in that. We'll table that. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, if you do the exact same exercise to those Spurs teams, because it's hard to say even who the best player is because they're so much more than the sum of their parts because they're such an incredible collective unit. Any player there who was selected as the best player, their supporting cast would look like a 55, 60 win team. Easy, right? They, they're yeah. at, instead of being like minus 10, when you look at the same numbers, they're like plus five per 100 possessions, which is incredible. So that's the range and it's enormous and yet, what happens at the end of basketball seasons, Cody, comes down to one shot, comes down to the final game, the seventh game, comes down to a, a controversial call. Hugh Hollins with the call on Scottie Pippen and Hubert Davis in 1994. There's all these little perturbations. We did an entire podcast about shooting luck. So we're talking about the best players. Tim Duncan is a good example here. Like 2002, 2003, Tim Duncan. He has crazy plus minus numbers in the playoffs. But then you dig in and you realize like there's something going on with the shooting luck where his team is shooting like crazy good when he's on the court and then he's off the court and they're shooting crazy bad and the opponents are having the exact same effect. How do you, how do you confidently say at the end of the day, oh, well, this player won four championships and this player won zero. So, you know, I can't have him in this discussion. Well, I think we we've settled that to the side. I don't think anyone I don't think anyone should make the argument that Tim Duncan won more rings than KG, therefore he's the better player. But I think even going back to the Jurassic Park philosophy of it all, Kevin Garnett, Ben, did win a championship though. Like he was in you just laid out like the wasteland of situations, right? Like we are in apocalyptic zone and Kevin Garnett still was able to get to a situation. Now, after that they ran to injuries, they weren't able to repeat, they still had some huge signals, but I don't do you, know, Ben. Is, do you, do you, I, what do you, you think say? he was better in Boston? Do I think he was better in Boston? Yeah, no. in Minnesota. I think Kevin Garnett was better in like 2004. Of course. So all that happened was his team radically changed. I mean, I think nothing epitomizes the point more than that. If I he think that 
that epitomizes the point because Kevin Garnett, you know, I don't know how you want to phrase it, but he gives the really emotional interview in 2005 about how he's tried so far. He needs to get out. I, 2000, I don't even know when he gave this interview, but he's crying in this interview, talking about how he's poured everything into the Timberwolves and he just can't do it anymore. He gets himself out of the situation. Boom. He moves away. All of a sudden, he wins the championship. Is there any player, is there any GOAT-level player, Ben, all-star, superstar-level player that was in a worse situation than Kevin Garnett? And if there is, I don't know. Kevin Garnett's the one that got away and won a championship. No. To me, the other two are Akeem Olajuwon and Oscar Robertson. Um, And I think that's relevant to this conversation because, like, can you make a case for Kevin Garnett, for Hakeem Olajuwon, for Oscar Robertson as, you know, maybe having the greatest peak in basketball history when we talk about impact on the court, the things those guys are doing. In Garnett and and Hakeem's case, it's a two-way thing with the defense and the offense. And in Oscar's case, it's back to that playmaking thing that we were talking about. I'm not sure I could get it unless I get a little looser, a little more sophistry, as you say, with all three of them. But I mean, those guys, they were on my list when I was starting to think about like, okay, who can I make a case for that might be the best player ever? Just if I'm being honest about how certain we can be, are those guys in the conversation? Yeah, they're all in the conversation. And they want to combine, you know, Hakeem was in a wasteland, only made, really had the two runs. Everyone discounts that. I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people discount that because Jordan retired and all this stuff. And Oscar was able to go uh, to the Bucks. Did he only win because of Kareem? I mean, I don't know how you can look at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and not make the case that he could have been, could have been the best player ever at his peak. Yeah, I mean, I think Kareem, to me, is... This is a little besides what we're talking about right here, but Kareem's the easiest case for me, right? I already think that there's a solid enough chance that Kareem had the best peak of all time. I want to stick, I think, Ben, I think Kevin Garnett is one of the most fascinating players in terms of this conversation. Because you... I don't know how confident you just sounded right now saying this. Do you want to get into it? Do you think that Kevin Garnett has a legit case for being a GOAT in the NBA? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. I. You want me to make the case? I, I think I'm a little less convinced than you. Well, he... he here's the problem. Okay. Give, 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 me, your, give me your pessimism. Okay. I'm going to feed off it. Well, can I, can I give you some of my optimism and then rope in my pessimism as well? Like a nice little sandwich of like all of the flavors here? No, we just want the negativity. <laughs> the, the negativity, Ben, is kind of what I was talking about before, right? You need, if you're going to be talking about like an offensive GOAT level player. But he's not. You, he's not. I, I know. I know, Ben. I'm not saying that Garnett's the best offensive player ever. But comparatively to a lot of these other guys, the box score signal, especially in the playoffs, is considerably weaker, right? You could say, like, oh, his scoring numbers, I don't know, maybe they're Nash-like. Nash still probably has better scoring signals than than Kevin Garnett, but Nash's passing signals are much higher. Magic Johnson's passing signals are much higher. Kevin Garnett, to me, he was a good scorer. He was a good passer. He was a really good secondary passer that could fit in with his teammates and other high-level offensive players and things like that. But I don't know if that scoring combined with the passing is enough of, like, an offensive push for him to get his defense up there. Because, you know, I think Kevin Garnett's one of the greatest defensive players of all time. I don't think there's any question about how high his defense... Well, I guess there is question about how much impact his actual defense had. Whatever it is, he's near the top of it. But I'm not quite as convinced that the offensive side of the ball for him is enough to catapult him up 
to the other greatest players of all time. Are you, are you with Akeem Olajuwon? Uh, yeah, I think I am. What What's the difference? You, well, think, think, Akeem, you think Akeem Olajuwon is that much better offensively than Kevin Garnett? I do. I think Kev, I think Akeem Olajuwon, you know, again, maybe you're going to say call me out for box score watching or something else, but even just watching him, he's a lot more resilient of a scorer. He makes defenses bend a lot more uh, because of this ability to just, like, take and make ridiculously tough shots, right? It puts defenses in a tough position. He was able to up his passing game because defenses were just terrified of him getting it in the post. Whereas Kevin Garnett, I think, it was more of, like, the passing game that was better for him. Whereas Olajuwon's ridiculous scoring game is what opened up his ability to kick out and run their four-out offense. So why do you think that the Timberwolves consistently had better offenses than the Rockets and and more importantly because these are that's still a team level sort of thing but I think it is relevant to what what we're getting at here why do you think Garnett consistently had let's say large offensive impact signals in all of the scoreboard family of metrics that we alluded to earlier both in the regular season and the playoffs what what do you think is going on there well is it the fact that the bench other players don't quite have the offensive ability? So when he goes to the bench, you bring in just like the bottom of the barrel type of players, and that kind of maybe skews the game a little bit more? Do you think, well, do you think in all of the different rosters and construction setups that you had in Minnesota, and then going to Boston and having kind of like two phases or two different teams in Boston, the 2008 team with Posey and Eddie House and all that, and then the Rondo, Tony Allen um, sort of, do you think in that entire time period that it's reasonable because we talked about uncertainty in these stats. Do you think that's a reasonable explanation to say, wow, this guy over X thousand number of minutes or 1200 bench minutes or whatever it is, um, all that's happening is the Celtics keep subbing him out or the, the Wolves keep subbing him out for their very, very, very worst player. And that effect doesn't apply to anyone else. It only applies to him. Well, let me ask you something here. What does his offensive signal look like when he's with the Boston Celtics? Oh, I think it's smaller. It's definitely okay. smaller than when he's with the Timberwolves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So but, what do you, b- besides him maybe not being quite as good as the Timberwolves, like, do you think he's actually that much worse on offense with the Celtics? Or is there something else going on that's making that signal look worse with the Celtics? No, I think in 2008 he's much closer. But then he has the injury, and he doesn't really quite get back uh, in terms of his physical health until 2011 and uh, I still think that's a little short of where he was offensively before that injury and when he was three or four years younger and whatnot so I think that's absolutely uh, a case that's happening where um, over that time period his offense is not the same as what it was as when he was in Minnesota at his peak but it's still a general kind of question where we can use him as a case study if we look at playoff plus minus now this gets a lot noisier but it's also like the chips are down. Like these are the best teams. You're playing the best teams. And we can look at not just what happens when you're off the court and the changes with your teammates, but how successful are your teams when you're on the court. If we look at this, Cody, and we look at all the data we have since 1997, and we say uh, the one I have up in front of me uh, is 850 minutes on the bench, 1500 minutes on the court. For all players, and we account for how many minutes you play. So playing 40 minutes a game, or in Garnett's case over that time period, 38 minutes a game, is different than playing 30 minutes a game. We look at every player. 
in the 26 years or whatever, LeBron James is number one in changes to his team, and Kevin Garnett is right behind him. Technically, George Hill and some other Pacers. I don't know. We've talked about this before. The the Frank Vogel Pacers have like a ton of players in there that had, you know, that would be an example of a specific team with players going in and out of the lineup together that all kind of seem to lump up, where if you look at the second order effects, now you start to see like, okay, there's interactions taking place because of the substitution patterns. We don't see that with LeBron. And we don't see that with Kevin Garnett. Those are the top guys. Uh, a huge amount of that is coming from his defense. Mm-hmm. A huge amount. But his offense still looks really good. And to me, it goes back to the Kevin Porter, Steve Nash question of like, theoretically, do you want all these things? Yes. But also we know, I think we know that the box score misses a ton of nuance. And Kevin Porter going for 17 and 13 is not the same thing as Steve Nash going for 17 and 11 or 18 and 11 or whatever it is in the playoffs. And the reason is because of decision-making, speed of decision-making, quality of passing, quality of playmaking. In Nash's case, the little extra dribble to probe into the lane and create a little opening that wouldn't be there. So Garnett is not a GOAT-level offensive player to stick with him. But how do I know that his... What he yells out to his teammates, his screen setting, his offensive rebounding, the quickness of his decision making, the fact that he doesn't want to pound the ball and hold it and isolate, and that he liked to play out of the lane and create space in an era where there was less space in the paint. How do I know that all those factors don't offset the fact that, you know, he's a slightly worse scorer than someone else? He's also a very good passer as well. How do I know that? It seems weird to make that definitive statement when all of these scoreboard impact numbers are screaming in the opposite direction, but also be comfortable that Kevin Porter's, you know, box score impact is kind of whatever. And Steve Nash is a goat. Well, I think what you just said is actually extremely convincing in the, in the fact that Kevin Garnett may be playing away, doing a lot of delay action back in his day. He's up top. He's doing a lot of triple handoffs. Uh, Absolutely. I'm going to make that case for another player at another time. But I do, I am partial to the idea that, like, a big man that's able to create more space in a time, maybe, especially when we're not seeing that much spacing from the big man there, is actually squeezing out a little bit more offense than we're actually seeing. I think that, to me, is the best offensive argument for Kevin Garnett is that sort of handoff action before it was in vogue, uh, especially to the degree that we're seeing now, is making it much easier for Kevin Garnett to give a lot more offensive value. Cody, I got I got to do a time check. Should should what should we do? Should we should we pause and come back and see if people want more? How are how are you feeling? Okay, <laughs> let me uh, let me make one more case for Kevin Garnett because I did I did come up with like a Doctor Strange one sort of thing here where I'm like this to me is actually the best case for Kevin Garnett and it kind of breaks the rules for what I set up for at the beginning of the episode. But if you were to make like literally the greatest team of all time. Right, We're talking like the Bill Simmons alien team coming, the playground team, and you just need to get together the greatest lineup of all time. You know, you've guys like, you can bring LeBron James and Michael Jordan, whomever else. I don't know when you have everyone together if anyone has more value on that team than Kevin Garnett. I think everyone else sort of does enough of the same thing. Right? Like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, all these guys playing together. They're going to encroach on their skill sets just a little bit more 
than on the things that Kevin Garnett brings to the table. And so when we see a lineup of these guys, I think Kevin Garnett might actually end up having the greatest impact, losing the least amount of impact that he brings to the table than anyone else in history. And I think that, to me, is the most interesting argument for Kevin Garnett to be a GOAT candidate. So he fill, does he fill in all the nooks and crannies? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly it. He's so good at the nooks and crannies. He's the supercharged Draymond Green, Scottie Pippen, that like everything else he brings to the game just isn't like brought down by having other high-end talent next to him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's consistent with having this kind of impact signal. And today we've, we've talked about a, a handful of players that have this kind of impact signal. Are we going to come back and do a part two? I think we, I think we kind of have. There's a lot to. of players. Yeah. There's a lot of players left on the plate here, Ben. There are, there are a lot of players, and I think that's what's interesting. We're gonna, we're gonna try to corral this in part two, and I'm gonna try to kind of make up my mind about how many players are included in this. But clearly, unless you are un, I think unless you are unwilling to say. LeBron and Michael Jordan, we'll st- we had those at the top, so we'll stick with those two guys. Unless you were unwilling to say that there's some evidence that they're like not on their own island. Um, did I say that backwards? You know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, with those, t- unless, you're, unless you're not budging on those two guys as like outlier, or anyone, as long as you don't think anyone is an outlier, the evidence that we have to shut out these other all-time great players regardless of how much they won. Um, and I think that's what messes with our minds. It's like, well, why, why didn't Hakeem win more? Why didn't Oscar win more? Why, di- why didn't Jerry West win more? Um, if they did win more, then it wouldn't change anything about how they played as basketball players. And you would be on the bandwagon espousing all the things they did to win. And on the flip side, if Michael Jordan never gets Scottie Pippen, he's still Michael Jordan. He's still the same player. And there would be a hipster contingent of people, right? Like we would have this podcast, Cody, and we'd be like, Cody, I got to make an argument for that Michael Jordan guy as the greatest player ever. And, and many people would have whatever knee-jerk reaction they're going to have to any other player that we said in this episode that is non-traditional, but it's the exact same idea. Somebody's got to win. Careers are short. And at the end of the day, I think the amount we reward players for having great teammates is larger than we're comfortable saying. And, just, and as I say all that, I think we do a pretty good job of getting the right guys in the room, right? It's just yeah. that we create different rooms or different floors. In a room, I guess in a room you can't have, well, you're in a building. The right guys are in the building, okay? <laughs> and I just think sometimes we're like, nah, this guy doesn't belong on the next floor, um, even though he only went up to that floor because his teammates carried him. I, j- I just had a thought. I'm trying not to extend this, Ben, but it- it's just a thought I had based on what you said. Is it possible? Is it possible that Michael Jordan's actually not as good as he would be without Scottie Pippen on the floor with him? Like, is there a chance that the teammates that are around you actually escalate how good you are because they're able to push up the skills that you're bringing to the table? We have to talk about this in part two because it's, okay. <laughs> it's, we have an interaction effect yep. that's going on there. And I think we also, another part of this story to me is that it's hard enough to figure out how darn valuable the player is on his own team. And then from there, do we go like, well, what if he didn't have, what if, what if Pippen and Jordan together amplify each other? And, and we accept that. Let's just, for the sake of the argument, accept that. What if Draymond and Steph Curry amplify each other? 
And then do we hold that against them? Or is that a good thing? <laughs> Are we trying to figure out what happens with other teammates? The murkiness to me is the whole reason for why it's hard to definitively say, no, uh, you know, maybe Magic Johnson was the best player I ever saw. Or it definitely wasn't Magic Johnson. It's hard to definitively say that. Let's put it that way. Let's, let's pause there. Yep. We'll see if may, maybe, maybe there'll be too many stones thrown at us so we can't come back for, <laughs> for part two. They'll, they'll say, please, let the summer end. Let's, get, let's put down the <laughs> philosophical pipe and uh, let's get back to analyzing the best young defenders in the league. But I do probably want to come back and finish this with a part two because I, there's more players to talk about here. And yep. I think there's more of these concepts for me to work through. And I'm happy we're doing a pause because I'm interested to see what kind of feedback and reaction we get based on this conversation. Uh, to support us, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's what it is, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have extra content there. We have a Discord community. We just had our uh, live Q&A, which was a lot of fun this past weekend. And we have a bot inside the Discord community where you can like query all kinds of historical pieces of information that would have been really cool to have back in 1998. But we didn't, Cody, we didn't know this stuff. That's another thing we could talk about next time. Like even with all of the information we have right now, the foundations for coming up with these ideas of who the best players were and who the best players of all time were, that information didn't exist 40 years ago. Forget three-point shooting or things like that and the understanding of spacing. I'm talking about uh, we didn't have stats. We didn't have ac readily available access to playoff box scores. We didn't know anything about wowie or when teams were in, players were in and out of the lineups. We didn't know anything about plus minus until the 90s. Uh, and we didn't even have that in the 90s. That didn't even become available until the 2010s, even though it was tracked starting in 1997 by the NBA officially. So that is it for this one. Um, really, really hope you enjoyed it and stuck stuck with us. Uh, and, uh, and as always, of course, wherever you are, I hope you are having a great day. <laughs>